Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Mira Sayal and in today's very special Doctor Who edition of the Penguin Podcast, I'm joined by the comedian and Doctor Who enthusiast, audiobook narrator, man of a million voices, John Culshaw. Welcome, John. Hello there, Mira. Lovely to be with you. John is going to be talking about bringing the Doctor Who stories to life in audiobooks, including Doctor Who and the Ark in Space, Death to the Daleks, Doctor Who and the Sontaran Experiment, and his latest reading, and it's a corker, The Pirate Planet. We'll be hearing extracts from these audiobooks, and John has also brought along a number of objects that have shaped his career and his Doctor Who work. So hold on to your sonic screwdrivers, and here we go. John, I know you are a long-time Doctor Who fan. Can you remember when you first discovered the Doctor? Yes, I think I can. Uh, I was about four or five years old, I think, in the heart of the John Pertwee era. Ah. He was he was my Doctor, my first Doctor that I remember. And I think the story was the demons or the time monster. And I, I, I can just vividly remember this strange little church gargoyle called Bock that was hopping around in a rather jerkily frightening manner. Oh, I think I have a vague memory of that one. Yes, yes. this was about 1971, I think, thinking yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. And I remember being very spooked by this as a kid. But the great thing about John Pertwee's Doctor was that he was very paternal, very wise, very strong, and instantly he knew exactly what to do and you felt that he would protect you, he would protect everyone. <laughs> yeah, so that was that at the deep Yes, he did, he did. You sort of... You felt relaxed and confident with him around to work out what the trouble was and then deal with it. And that was wonderful to watch that. So were there episodes like everybody else where you ended up watching through your fingers or hiding behind a cushion? Because I definitely remember doing that with the Cybermen. Oh, yes, indeed, indeed. I never watched behind the sofa or through the crack in the door, but I do remember gripping the arm of the, of the settee <laughs> a little bit. In a manly bit. way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going behind the sofa. I wasn't too close from nipping behind the sofa <laughs> for protection. Yeah, the Daleks always scared me too until I worked out, well, if one of them comes along, I'll just go upstairs. Yes, exactly. Until they came up with the floaty Daleks, which they've got now, the latest yes. ones, and I thought, well, that's not fair. That's right, now that was can... in uh, Sylvester McCoy's time, when that's they started right. to say, elevate! <laughs> oh, that, now that was genuinely speaking, did that hurt? It did, it was like gargling very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it about the programme that hooked you in? I think it was the psychological atmosphere of fear. Yeah. Certainly the, the theme tune. It's a brilliant tune, isn't yes, it? Yes, and, and it gives you a psychological sense of unease mm. and it just transports you into this mysterious world with monsters and enemies and aliens, but with the Doctor to guide you through it and regulate you and everything will be all right as so long as the Doctor is there. And also the sense that you could go anywhere in the universe and at any time in the universe's existence, the the possibilities were endless. Mm. But also right next to that, it was very emotional. It was about the Doctor and his companion and the people that he was saving. It was very close to, but also infinite. And um, I don't think any other programme can quite manage that in the same way. I think you're absolutely right. That's obviously why it's endured. As you said, a very reassuring blend of venturing into the unknown and, and confronting actually quite big philosophical questions sometimes. Yes, enormously. But also having the Doctor holding your hand all the way through. Mm, yes, yes, and being very heroic and entertaining, depending on his incarnation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's also a brilliant move. It means that you can just keep going, can't yes, you? Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, do you have a favourite Doctor? Um, my favourite Doctors 
John Pertwee and Tom Baker, because they're the ones I remember from childhood. From childhood. I mean, I like all the Doctors for different reasons in, in different ways. Christopher Eccleston with that very unpredictable, here's a Doctor who's been through some trauma, um, you know, the time war and everything that was you written about that. You felt he needed some therapy, didn't you? Yes. That, that Doctor. Yes, yeah. exactly. The scars were there. Yeah, that was fascinating. Uh, but I, I love all of them for different reasons. But I think your childhood Doctors, the, the first ones you witnessed... I thought you might say Tom Baker because, of course, you're very famous for your just uncanny <laughs> Tom Baker impression. Yes, it's very velvety. Um, yes, it's very velvety. We are quite I just don't know how you do that. It is like you are channeling a spirit. It's quite <laughs> weird to watch you become him. So let's dip into one of your own Doctor Who audiobooks. Um, and this extract is the opening of your latest one, The Pirate Planet. The Doctor, the Time Lady Romana and K-9 are hunting the six pieces of the key to time, which have been hidden throughout time and space, of course. They have traced the second segment of the key to the mysterious planet, Calufrax. It rained diamonds that day, but no-one cared. The people of Zanak simply held up their umbrellas made of gold and got on with their lives, which, for the most part... Involved shuffling through streets already clogged with emeralds and rubies. No one looked up. No one wanted to see the rain of precious stones. Far less get hit in the eye by one. But that wasn't the real reason. If you lived in Zanak's capital city and looked up, you couldn't help but see the mountain. And no one wanted to see the mountain. So their gold-leaf umbrellas, dented with diamonds, the people of Zanak went about their business looking dead ahead. Crowning the mountain was the citadel. It was a peculiar building, a haphazard mingling of ancient stone and burnt metal that looked pretty much as though a starliner had fallen into a mountain, which, curiously enough, was exactly what had once happened. I have to say, I love that opening. What a beautiful and rather profound image. Yes, yes. Diamonds raining down on gold umbrellas. Very Douglas Adams. Yes, exactly. And wonderfully written. It was a joy to, uh, you know, to get my head around it and deliver it. But yes, the idea of one planet that would materialise around another mm. and just sort of parasitically consume it. And it rains diamonds and uh, a, a great age of prosperity, as they call and it. And yet they mean nothing. Mm -hmm. I should say that the extract we've just heard is a novelisation of an act Doctor Who TV series episode, I think, from the 16th mm. season, which was written by the legendary Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Dirk Gently and other sci-fi classics. Mm. And you do really feel his voice in this, don't you? Yes, yes. I mean, it, it's... Uh... James Goss, the great author, has written it based on these uh, notes and scripts from Douglas Adams, and he really gets the tone and the, and the rhythm. You can tell that James Goss loves <laughs> the writing style of Douglas Adams. He, he just gets it. But yes, the idea of you know the, the, the greatest tragedy you can imagine, really, one planet consuming another mm. and all the life just wiped out. But yet there's room for great humour and pathos in there as well. I loved the humour and the pathos in this book. I mean, James has done a wonderful job because it's, it's exactly what I would associate with Douglas Adams' writing, that you have a, a great big idea at the heart of it. 
that works on a brilliantly humorous level. I mean, there were laugh out loud moment, like the doctor suddenly realising he hired a cleaner 30 years ago to tidy up the TARDIS and hadn't seen her since and wondering if he was paying her by the hour. (laughs) And yet you actually have this very um, layered story, which is actually talking about the meaningless of acquiring wealth. It's talking Mm. about conservation. It's talking about the guilt, the psychic collective guilt that that mm. gathers when you just keep consuming and consuming and nothing is mm. feeding your soul. That's what the mourners do effectively in the story. Mm. So it just works on many, many different layers. And um, that was one of the genius things about Douglas Adams. I think he could mm. pull both of those things off. I think he's a great philosopher, actually, Douglas, in his writing. So I mentioned that you've brought in a number of objects with you. And your first object, probably unsurprisingly, is a telescope and a rather beautiful junior telescope. It's a lovely shade of blue. It's got a little end and a big end. That's as much (laughs) as you'll get from me, technically. And a big old stand. So um, tell me about the telescope. Well, this was in my parents' loft in Ormskirk for many, many years. And my older brother, Jim, um, had it when he was a lad. And um, when I was nine, I I got this telescope out of the loft and uh, was rather amused looking at it. It seemed like a long Baco foil tube with lenses at either side. (laughs) That's a good description. (laughs) (laughs) Like that. But I'd seen an episode of The Sky at Night one afternoon when I was off school in about 1976. And there was Patrick Moore talking very, very quickly, one eye open rather more than the other, talking about lunar eclipses and pulsars. Very, very fascinating indeed. Of course, Halley's Comet will return, but not until 1987, so we'll have to wait and see. And there he was, this amazing character, talking about such profound things. And I just tried to look at the stars through this telescope. With a moderate amount of success, I remember seeing a red disc, but I'd only just found the dining room curtains at that stage <laughs> i thought it was mars uh, but but gradually through you know borrowing my father's binoculars as well and looking at the moon it just brought the sense of the the, the great distance of the universe and how you could see it from just outside your own garden shed how extraordinary and so you became a pretty good astronomer i mean you began to learn all the different constellations and stars yes obviously. yes i remember reading the observer's book of astronomy written by patrick moore and this got me sort of hungry to sort of want to see the aurora and total solar eclipses, partial eclipses, shooting stars, things like this. Well, firstly, you've appeared on The Sky at Night. I think you appeared on the 700th episode. Yes, indeed, indeed, yeah, the 700th. So it was a great thrill to, you know, be part of the programme. And I'm not an expert by any means, but as an enthusiast, mm. I like to ask the experts the questions that the viewers might have. Yes, like which end should I look through, which would be mine. Um, And also with this guy at night, you went to see the the Northern Lights. Yes, indeed, indeed. I'm very envious. I'm I'm sure it's an extraordinary experience. You almost hear a harpsichord soundtrack in your mind to accompany the filaments of the green and and the purple um, shimmering light. And it's astonishing to see that the, the Earth's magnetosphere reacting with the solar wind and all the charged particles. And it's just astonishing. It's a beautiful thing to see. Quite extraordinary. Do you think your love of space fed you into loving Doctor Who or was it the other way around? There must have oh, been a yes. connection somewhere. I'm, I'm sure, yes. I, I think astronomy that you can study yourself 
the worlds of, of Doctor Who take you a little bit closer into it. It's sort of like you picks up your imagination and warp drive off somewhere. <laughs> you know, you really do see alien planets and uh, all of the creatures dressed in tinfoil and you silver can't Wellingtons. Beat a bit of tinfoil on a hairdryer, can no, you? Oh, exactly. Let's return to space now with another extract from one of your audiobooks, John. This is from The Ark in Space. The TARDIS has landed on a space station orbiting Earth in the distant future. Sarah has vanished and the Doctor and Harry have followed a slime trail to a mysterious chamber. Could I have a creepy laugh, please, just to introduce it? <laughs> Excellent. The phosphorescent light filling the chamber came from the translucent shields protecting the pallets. Each shield was moulded to the contours of the human form. As their eyes became accustomed to the alien half-light, the Doctor and Harry discerned the outline of a human body suspended in each alcove. In the cold silence, the effect was like that of entering a huge mausoleum. What a play, began Harry. His voice rang and reverberated round the chamber. He went on in an abashed whisper. What a place for a mortuary. Look, Doctor, there must be hundreds of them. The Doctor advanced a few paces, craning upwards with an air of respect. This is no mortuary, Harry. Quite the reverse. It's an old principle, but I've never seen it applied on this scale before. As they began to walk slowly round, staring up at the seemingly endless array of bodies, Harry tried to conceal his unease beneath an air of professional detachment. When you've seen one corpse, you've seen them all, he shrugged. The doctor wandered into the shadows of the next bay, peering through the shields as if examining exhibits in a museum. These people are not dead, Harry. They're asleep. He continued to speak, his voice rising and echoing majestically around the vast vaults. Homo sapiens! What an indomitable species! It's only a few million years since they crawled up out of the sea and learned to walk. A puny, defenceless biped, it has survived flood, plague, famine, war. And now here it is, out among the stars, awaiting a new life. That's something for you to be proud of, Harry. Harry, what do you think you're doing? The doctor had made a complete circuit of the chamber and came upon Harry examining the pupils of an occupant, whose shield he had managed to prize open. Harry pointed to the slim, fair-haired young man lying there inert with open, staring eyes. He was dressed in a simple white uniform with green identification flashes. There was no colour in his face, and his skin was waxen and cold. There you are, Doctor, he said triumphantly. Not a flicker of life. Suspended animation, retorted the Doctor, pushing Harry aside and quickly closing the shield. But there are no metabolic functions at all protested Harry. Even in the deepest coma you will find that the... Total cryogenic suspension, Harry, the doctor interrupted impatiently. You can't survive 10,000 years in a coma. Harry stared at the shrouded figure. 10,000 years, he said. That's impossible. Oh, 10,000? 50,000. The time is immaterial, provided, of course, that no one interferes with the systems, the doctor added pointedly. Harry glanced wildly about the ranks of inert human bodies, his mind reeling. The doctor spoke in an almost reverent hush. The future of the entire human race in one chamber. 
carefully. He checked that the pallet Harry had opened was firmly closed and sealed again. Come along, Harry, he said. We must find Sarah, and then take our leave. We're intruders here. Anxious not to irritate the doctor any further, Harry resisted the flood of questions rising in his mind and followed him towards the entrance. As he turned for a last look at the awesome spectacle, Harry's heart missed a beat. His shoeless feet were suddenly held in a fierce grip that all but toppled him over. Doctor, look! He breathed. He was stuck fast to another silvery trail snaking across the floor of the chamber. It was identical to the one they had found earlier. It disappeared into a grill at the base of the central shaft. The doctor dropped to his knees and began tracing the sticky trail as it wound away into the shadows. Perhaps it's some kind of mold, suggested Harry. But you said you saw something moving before, the doctor reminded him. Harry shivered and looked uneasily around. He remembered the doctor's reference to giant snails. Something caught his eye in one of the pallets in the opposite bay. It looked different from the others. The doctor was busy trying to scrape up a sliver of the tacky substance with the probe. On tiptoe, his sock still slightly sticking to the floor, Harry cautiously approached the pallet. As he peered into it, he thought he detected a swirling, vaporous movement. Glancing round to make sure the doctor was still occupied, Harry eased open the magnetic shield. There, her skin like chalk, and her body cold and rigid, lay Sarah Jane Smith. For a moment, Harry was speechless, riveted by Sarah's fixed, expressionless gaze. Then he gasped, Sarah! The doctor was at his side in an instant, ready to reprove him for his meddlesome ways. When he saw Sarah, his huge eyes nearly popped out of his head. Very quietly, he said, There's nothing we can do for her, Harry. Instinctively, Harry moved forward to lift Sarah out of the pallet. The doctor firmly gripped him by the arm. We're too late, he whispered. She's become part of the process. We'll only harm her if we interfere now. Harry stared at him in horror. There must be something I can do, he cried. Shaking his head firmly, the doctor started to close the magnetic shroud. Sarah will remain like that for a thousand years at least. Not if I can help it, said Harry defiantly. Earlier, he had noticed the outlines of coded inspection panels set into the central shaft. He gestured hopefully towards them. Couldn't we break into the works, he pleaded? Reverse the process or something? But again the doctor shook his head resolutely. On a sudden impulse, Harry darted across the shaft and began clawing frantically at the smooth, sealed edges of the panels. Before the doctor could restrain him, he had sprung open a hatch the size of a door. He found himself staring into a dark cubicle, and for a split second he caught a glimpse of an enormous locust-like figure with gigantic eyes looming over him like an insect Buddha. Then, as he sprang backwards with a scream of terror, something toppled slowly past him with a sickening crunching sound. There was a clatter of brittle tentacles and antennae, which fractured and scattered a gelatinous cobweb substance all over him. I hate 
hate it when you get covered with gelatinous cobweb substances, don't you? <laughs> it's not very nice. It's not very nice. And, John, when did you discover the novelizations of the Doctor Who episodes? Yes, I remember them. Uh, the old Target novelizations. I remember them from being a lad in the mid-1970s. Of course, at that time, there was no catch-up TV, no iPlayers, no video. You watched the programme and that was that. And if you wanted to go back to it, the only way, really, was the Target novelizations. So, yes, in the mid-1970s, I remember those. Uh, and what's the recording process like? I mean, I've, I've done audiobooks myself and mm. it, it's quite concentrated work, isn't it? Yes, yes. Sometimes I find it quite uh, tricky because I'm, I'm used to voiceovers and speaking in short bursts uh, in a quite deliberate way, usually. It's a different mode altogether to sit back and just get into your sort of audiobook voice, a little bit like this. <laughs> it's a bit like putting your phone voice on. As you say, very concentrated days. It's very concentrated, mm. and it's, it's easy to sort of drift off to the sound of your own voice. But, of course, you have the massive advantage that you can and are so brilliant at so many other voices, so that obviously must be an advantage. But isn't it a challenge finding voices for alien life forms? Yes, it, it is rather. <laughs> Usually it, it's quite painful doing their voices. That you, to make them alien, you probably have to, I don't know, compress parts of your... This is the, a sort of a Santaran tone of voice, like this. You have to sort of compress or be alien or weird or frightening. Like that. Oh, that's very good. You just like pu pushing the tone into some unexpected part of your larynx, you know. So I, I imagine when you get the script, you sort of whiz through and go, "Oh, it's a blob. It, it, it's a blob with with two antenna." What kind of? How would the blob speak? <laughs> you sort of go through all the different permutations in your head and try a few out. Yes, you have to just audition a few in your own imagination <laughs> and see which one rings true. Plus, it's 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 fun to impersonate these monsters and aliens that uh, ordinarily you wouldn't have an outlet for, no. apart from in a Doctor Who audiobook. Absolutely, that's the joy of them. Uh, now we should go on to your next object because really this has brought back a lot of memories. Mm. I have here, ladies and gentlemen. A cassette player. Yes. Now, for anyone under 25... No, I can't even be bothered to explain. It's, uh, it's, I think I had one very similar. It, it's black, it's got the little section at the front, it's got the buttons at the front and a little carrying handle and, of course, the all-important red button for oh, yes. record. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks prehistoric now, but this was our teenage lifeline, wasn't it? It really, really was. You know, a recording device about the size of a brick <laughs> uh, with all those buttons on them that were so empowering and, and those lovely cassettes where you could, you know, record some of your favourite songs off, you know, off the radio. Not that we're condoning that, of course. Of course not. Of course not. Um, why have you brought this in? Why is it so special? This was how I used to make my first demo tapes, by pressing play and record and uh, just saying a few words of an impersonation character and then pressing stop and then pressing play and record again and saying a few more. And so by the end of it, you'd have a section of, of voices recorded all together. This would have been about 1983, wow. 1984. So even as a kid, you knew you had this facility. Yes, and, and through the cassette player. But I used to send these off to radio stations uh, to try and get a job, either as a presenter or voicing commercials. 
And so this was like my my kit. This was my equipment that I my used. My goodness, it was. This was your CV. Yes, on exactly. Yes. And in fact, you did land a job on local radio. Was it Red Rose Radio? Indeed it was, and yes. you used to read out the weather in the voice of Frank Bruno. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was, you know, a nice, unexpected thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I always found out that... Um, I always felt that Bob Geldof was great to read the weather. You know, because, you know, 10 Celsius, 50 Fahrenheit at this time of the year, that is a disgrace. <laughs> So let's hear another of your readings before we get too nostalgic and old, mm. old person. So this one is from, oh, well, now this one. It's obviously everybody's favourite, taken from the audiobook Death to the Daleks. An energy drain has trapped the Doctor and Sarah Jane on the planet Exelon. Sarah has been captured by the hostile natives, the Exelons. Meanwhile, the Doctor has encountered a marine space corps expedition, searching for the rare mineral perinium, which is needed to cure a galactic plague. So it's just another day, really. Their rescue vessel has just landed nearby. Or so they think. They struggled to the top of a rise. Peter Hamilton pointed. Look, there it is! The spaceship was just settling down to land in the centre of the rocky plain ahead of them. The flames of its retro rockets dying away. Clouds of smoke and dust rose up around it, obscuring the shape. Come on! shouted Jill, and began running down the other side of the hill. The others followed. By the time they reached the ship, the smoke had drifted away. It sat gleaming in the centre of the barren plain the basic flying saucer shape common to most interstellar craft. Peter Hamilton stared at it in puzzlement and turned to Railton. Doesn't look much like an Earth ship to me, sir. Galloway said, This may be some new experimental model, that new Z-47 they've been planning. But there was no conviction in his voice. Railton mopped the sweat from his forehead. She's not a space corps craft, he said slowly. The Doctor said nothing. He stood gazing thoughtfully up at the ship. "'What do you think, Doctor?' asked Railton. "'I think we'll know soon enough.' Galloway stared uneasily at the ship. "'Why don't they come out?' "'Maybe they've run into the power drain just as we did,' suggested Jill. "'You remember we could barely get our doors open.' Peter cupped his hands. "'Come out, whoever you are!' he shouted. "'The welcome party's here!' As if in response, there was a laboured hiss of hydraulic power. Slowly, very slowly, a landing ramp slid out of the ship and a door above it opened. Two squat metallic shapes glided swiftly down the ramp. Two more appeared in the doorway of the ship. Jill Tarrant gave a gasp of horror. Daleks! One of the Daleks in the ship's doorway spoke in the metallic, grating voice that the Doctor had known and hated for so long. The humans are to be exterminated! Fire at my command! The Daleks at the foot of the ramp swung their gunsticks to cover the little party. Railton ran forward, his arms held out in appeal. Wait a minute, he called. Wait, please, you can't! The Dalek leader grated. Fire! It's iconic. That voice is iconic. And that's actually one of the things that do stand out in the audiobooks, is is the amazing sound design. What do the sound effects and music, do you think, bring to the story? 
I think they judge them so well because they are there, but I, I don't think it's overdone. It, it's just done enough to create the atmosphere. It's amazing listening back to some of them now. The arc in space there where there was the, that just that gentle hum in the background that gives you a feeling of floating in space. And the pirate planet is more loaded with sound textures and, and soundscaping. Yeah, it's a fantastic soundscape in the pirate planet. Yeah, and creating also the sounds of war and, and, and great conflict and so on. But it, it's amazing how they do it, just to fill in the gaps in your imagination, but without doing so too much, I think. That's a great marriage, actually, sci-fi and audiobooks, isn't it? Because mm. you could probably never recreate on screen, unless you had a massive million-pound budget, what you can do with sound and yes. people's imagination. Yes, and um, the, the Death to the Daleks story, that's one of my favourite John Pertwee stories. And it's very interesting because, uh, first of all, they take the power away from the TARDIS. Uh, John Pertwee's doctor with that very sharp uh, resonance uh, with which he spoke, uh, that very, very crisp sound of an action hero. Once again, he's working it out and he's putting the answers together. And then, of course, you take away the power of, from the Daleks, that they lose their ability to use their weaponry. So when they have to form uneasy alliances with the Doctor and uh, the space explorers and so on, that was an interesting place to take the Daleks mm. at that time. Marvellous. So I would like to talk about your, uh, your next object, oh, which yes. is a new one on me, and fascinating it is too. It's a Spectrum computer. Oh, yes. Well, it sort of looks like a, a rather bulky laptop. Which I guess is what it what was. I mean, really, I've never come across one of these. I'm, I'm guessing it's one of the earliest ones ever made, is it? Yes, around about 1982 that came out, uh, the ZX Spectrum computer. And I sort of consider it to be a, a bit like the first tablet, really. But looking like a computer keyboard. Yes. Actually, very yes. big, chunky keys. Oh, it's got a little section for a cassette player. That dates it. <laughs> oh, yes. Now, this was the... Uh, I think they built it up, the um, the one with the, uh, the the rainbow symbol across the side of it. That was the original. But I used to write my scripts with my ZX Spectrum, which helped to make the demo tapes later. But also you could print them off on a ZX printer. It was about the size of a packet of cigarettes and it would print in these very blocky C-faxy letters on the silver paper, which gave a smell of burning. <laughs> You're really selling it to me. Yes. <laughs> but it was just fun to watch the mechanical workings of it. And Absolutely. You know, silver paper. Silver paper, yes. It's all, it's all, everything seems to come back to Doctor Who yes, for yes. some reason. So let's hear another reading because they are just so good from one of your Doctor Who audiobooks. And this is the opening of the Sontaran Experiment. A huge red sun hung in the sulphurous yellow sky, its angry light filtering through thin clouds of whitish mist which swirled over the deserted, wasted landscape. Its dulled rays were reflected with a sinister glow in the scarred surfaces of nine spheres, each about a metre in diameter, which formed a perfect circle roughly twelve metres across. The circle was set in an area of almost geometrical furrows and deep ruts, with blackened rocks showing through the scanty covering of dry, stringy, reed-like vegetation. The metallic skins of the nine globes were corroded and peeling, but here and there flickered a distorted image of the barren surroundings. Rolling moorlands bristling with reddish ferns that rustled ceaselessly with an eerie, brittle sound. Enormous rocky outcrops twisted into weird, 
nightmare shapes, casting their monstrous shadows. Whenever the sun broke through, the curling wraiths of vapor. And in the distance, massive cliffs, hundreds of meters high, with squarish, almost man-made outlines. The dry air stirred with warm and chilly breezes blowing together. Otherwise, all was still. Suddenly, something loomed in the center of the circle of spheres. For a moment, a bulky shape with a pale yellow light flashing above it wobbled uncertainly in the drifting mist. Then it abruptly vanished, leaving a dark, box-shaped hole. Seconds later, it reappeared, accompanied by a raucous groaning sound which gradually died away like distant thunder. This time, the pulsing light shone brilliantly, and the ghostly object grew more distinct. It hovered, swaying precariously, then dropped heavily into the crackling reeds, coming to rest at a steep angle. The light was extinguished, and silence fell. Then, excited human voices came from inside the shabby blue-painted structure, and several shadows moved across the frosted glass windows, ranged along the top of each of its four sides. Painted above each row of windows were the words, Police, Public Call Box. The chipped and weathered panelling of the box creaked loudly, as it swayed alarmingly to and fro, and it all but toppled over when a door suddenly flew open in the uppermost side. A very tall man appeared, balanced for a moment on the threshold, then took a deep breath and jumped lightly to the ground. He was dressed in a voluminous rust-coloured velvet jacket and oatmeal tweed trousers, and he wore an enormously long multicoloured scarf tied with a giant knot under his chin. A battered felt hat with a wide brim was crammed haphazardly on top of his mass of brown curly hair. He surveyed the scene with a single sweep of his huge, eager blue eyes. Then, gathering up the trailing ends of the scarf, he strode across to the nearest silver sphere. What an extraordinary coincidence! He boomed, kneeling down to examine the blistered metal. I wonder if it works. Tugging an old-fashioned ear trumpet from a bulging pocket, he clapped the battered horn against the globe and slowly moved it about while listening intently into the earpiece. He rapped on the sphere a few times with his knuckles and listened again. After a few seconds, he sprang up, darted to the neighbouring globe and repeated his examination. I don't believe it, he cried, springing up again and rushing across to examine a globe on the opposite side of the circle. Meanwhile, a burly young man in duffel coat and wellingtons had clambered out of the police box and was reaching up into the tilted doorway to help a trim young lady clad in bright yellow waterproofs and sou'wester to jump down. All at once, with a noise like a sudden gust of wind, the police box vanished, and the astounded young man found himself supporting his companion in mid-air. He stared open-mouthed at the black hole before his astonished eyes. Doctor, what's happened to the TARDIS? the girl cried. What did happen to the TARDIS? Well, I'm sure they'll find it in the end. It's somewhere in the universe. Welcome to the universe. You'll never leave. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you. You know I love that. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk about the next object you've brought in because it's it's taking over the room. And I am looking at the spitting image puppet of Michael Portillo. <laughs> yes. And it's it's a thing of beauty. There are the luscious lips. There's the, uh, the rather jowly chin. There's the fine eyebrows. There's one thing missing. Where's his hair? Because yes, exactly. he was very famous for his luscious hair, wasn't mm. he? That looks very, very, um, really not quite right at all. But yes, Michael Patilla was the first character that I ever voiced on Spitting Image. He's quite a difficult voice. Well, not for you, but um, go on, remind me. Well, yeah, he was the Defence Secretary at the time. Yeah. And uh, I think he spoke um, a little bit more uh, quickly than he does now. You know, now... We know Michael Portillo from the Great Railway Journeys with the luminescent blouse and blazer, green trousers. <laughs> yes. Oh, I've just remembered him. Thank you. So he was the first voice you ever did on yes. the Spitting Image. And of course, you were you know, the definitive satiric programme that we all loved and tuned into. Yes, much missed in many much ways. Much missed. And we sort of need it back. It's a rather yes. golden time for political satire now. Yes, I think it's um, too expensive to bring it back whenever they look at it, you know. But yes, Michael Patillo was the first character I ever voiced and it, I remember it very vividly. And how long were you actually on the programme? Um, I joined in 1994 and uh, was with it until it finished in 96. Yes, I suppose in 96 there was a, a feeling then that uh, I think Spitting Image had been around for about 14 years by that time and there was a sense that perhaps uh, reality was outperforming comedy <laughs> and I think that time is revisiting us. Isn't it just? And can you remember, at a guess, how many voices do you think did you do over those many years? I think maybe about 35 or 40 if you counted them all up. I think we all had that share right. amongst us, you know. And... Did you have a favourite or a least favourite? Um, let me see. Uh, yes, Richard Wilson, Victor Meldrew I used to do. You know, Victor Meldrew was at the height of his powers then. Uh, who else was there? Uh, Terry Christian, uh, welcome to the word. Uh, today we've got <laughs> Hufty and Mark Lamar. Um, it was, uh, the mid-90s was a great period for characters. Um, oh. You know, even pre-Boris Johnson and, and so on. There was plenty of great characters then. And also working alongside the others doing their characters. Alistair McGowan's uh, John Major. You know, he was the one who sort of turned John Major into, oh, oh Norma, would you like some peas? peas. I'll <laughs> never forget the grey peas. Yes. Much yes. missed work of genius. And we can't talk about Spitting Image without talking about your brilliant work on Dead Ringers as well. And I think you really found out through some of the spoof calls you did the fantastic connection between sci-fi and humour, which you used to its maximum effect, <laughs> yes. I think. I think if you take a, a sci-fi character, such as the Doctor, or maybe Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, <laughs> and if you, if you put a, a sci-fi character such as that juxtaposed with somebody at a cab office or somebody at a pizza house. Uh, and, and you can just say the most bizarre things and it brings out the most wonderful sense of humour from the people you're calling. They're joyful to play with. Do you, you have a favourite? Do you have one that sticks in the mind? I love um, Tom Baker ordering a Eurostar ticket. Oh, that, yes. that made me laugh a lot, but what's yes, yours? Yes, that was a very technological travel <laughs> as far as the earth was concerned at that period. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, we would phone... Um, yes, we would phone various uh, places as the doctor... And, uh, and say that, uh, you know, but perhaps their disabled ramps would allow access for the Daleks and they should be very wary. Um, <laughs> or we might phone, I think we phoned a betting shop 
um, asking to put on a bet for the, the Grand National in 1972. And uh, now you can't, that, that don't work. No, it's in a pile. You can't do it. It brings out that little bit of sense. I think my favourite moment was, um, hello, is that the bingo hall? Is that the Cosmos bingo hall? Yes, love. Which part of the Cosmos? Eccles. <laughs> <laughs> I love those two uh, universes side by side. Yes. And on that note, let's hear a final extract from one of your Doctor Who audiobooks. And this is another clip from The Pirate Planet. Romana raised her eyes reluctantly from the book, prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. She was in time to catch the Doctor flicking a switch that she was fairly sure shouldn't be flicked. Only, Romana looked back at the book, worried... It says in here that... Oh, don't worry about the book. The doctor waved a hand dismissively. If you followed everything it said in that book, you'd end up finding it was quicker to walk. It's all just handbook twaddle for beginners. I'll let you into a little secret. He seemed to be addressing both her and the ship itself. The man who wrote it was being paid by the page. The doctor tapped the book's fat spine. I know that for a fact. I once met him told me he'd never been near a TARDIS in his life. Nice chap. Used to breed chickens. He let that nugget sink in. Romana wondered if he was fibbing outrageously. Now, what were the second group of figures? They give us the vertical galactic coordinates. But what about the multi-loop stabilizer? Chickens or no chickens, that had seemed very important. It had had a whole chapter devoted to it. Trust me, you don't need... It. The doctor was plugging away. But the more Romana read, the more worried she became. It says here that it's impossible to affect a smooth materialization without activating the multi-loop stabilizer. Give that here. The doctor plucked the book from her hands, glanced at it, then tossed it over his shoulder with a satisfying thud. At a tripe. It's perfectly possible. I've done it a thousand times. Silly man was obviously thinking about egg-laying. With a multi-loop stabiliser. Have you ever seen an Arcturan mega-chicken? The doctor waited for a response. Of course she had not. Now then, I'll show you a smooth materialisation. Calufrax, here we come. Impressively, the doctor threw a switch. The TARDIS immediately fell wildly out of control emitting a terrible grinding noise as the ship plummeted alarmingly down the time vortex. Wow. <laughs> it's, uh, I've not heard these for ages, know, hearing them on fresh ears. The soundscaping that they, they do with that is just astonishing. Well, I wonder what they think when they see that direction, the TARDIS falling through the time vortex. Oh, I have just the noise for that. Well, that was our final extract, sadly, but now we come to your final object, which is a thing of beauty. It is oh. the Observer's Book of Astronomy, obviously an old and well-loved and well-thumbed hardback mm. by Patrick Moore and with a very haunting and detailed picture of the full moon on the front. Yes. I'm guessing this is your childhood book. Yes, yes, I read that cover to cover after watching that episode of The Sky at Night. The, the episode led me to find the book and to read it, and uh, it just made me want to get out and discover the night sky and study the moon. And um, hearing about how Patrick Moore himself, from his own observations, uh, drew and mapped the moon, such was the detail that NASA and, and the, the, the cosmonauts did actually refer to it 
for their own missions. They would refer to it to help them find the best place to land on the moon and uh, the likes of the cosmonauts, the Russian Space Administration and NASA, they referred to um, Patrick's uh, diagrams and observations of the moon. That's extraordinary. Is that why he had one eye bigger than the other? Because it was always <laughs> looking down a telescope? So it said. I mean, there was always... The eye was always a little bit like that. Uh, <laughs> there, was, there was a photograph in his study of his time uh, in the RAF as a navigator with the RAF in World War Two, And, well, the eye was a little bit like that. One eye open, slightly more than the other. But I'm sure that telescopic observation did accentuate it. <laughs> So the Observer's Book of Astronomy led you to a love of space, geekiness, exploration and sort of quite a direct path to Doctor Who, I imagine. Mm. Was it therapeutic, all the stargazing? Oh, yes, yes. I I think astronomy is very good for the soul. Uh, The great sense of distance, the great sense of the unreachable, the great sense of wonder. I think it's wonderful to fill your mind and imagination with that. And it does detach you from the moorings of some of the more tedious things we can be caught up in, mm-hmm. in day-to-day life. And it, it is very good for the soul to feel that there is a sense of wonder and a sense of light years and gas giants and ringed planets and mm-hmm. comets and so on. Just fascinating. And have you decided yet, are we alone? I'm sure we can't be. I am sure we can't be. I love a phrase by Neil deGrasse Tyson who said that to assume that we are alone in the universe is rather like picking up a glass of water, looking in it and saying there aren't any whales. It's (laughs) a lovely, profound (laughs) thing. That's a great image. And also that the building blocks of life, um, water and carbon, the elements involved in these, these, these are some of the most widespread elements and compounds in the universe. What we are made of is what the stars and planets are made of out there. So the idea that life could only take place on one planet in one galaxy of 350 billion stars, I think it must have done. The, the question is how common or rare is life in the universe and are technological civilizations able to reach each other before perhaps they destroy themselves. Mm. Carl Sagan would often describe this. But I think there must be. It's my guess, in my imagination, I think that there probably is perhaps an alliance of uh, alien races who are rather more advanced than we are. And at the moment they view us perhaps the way David Attenborough would, looking at some penguins... (laughs) Just sort of like leave them be. The, the collective response might be a bit unpredictable at the moment. Let's have another look in 2150 and see where they're up to. But for the moment, you know. So one day they may find uh, these audiobooks and see them as documentaries rather than well, I fiction. Wonder. Yes, I wonder. I wonder. And talking of the future. Mr. Culture, what are you up to next? Well, I'm very happy to say that I feel very lucky to have been invited to uh, read some more of these audiobooks and some, some stories that I'm hugely looking forward to. Genesis of the Daleks, which is a great uh, Tom Baker Dalek story, touched these two strands together. <laughs> and the Daleks are finished. Do I have the rights? That one. Um, and also something that for, for me will be a jamboree. I'm so looking forward to it. The Five Doctors, the 20th anniversary um, edition. 
So we're hugely looking forward to that. That is going to be very, very good. And do, can we see you on tour anywhere? Yes, indeed. Uh, myself and uh, Bill Dare, the uh, producer and creator of Dead Ringers, we're going on tour later this year in a show called The Great British Takeoff. Very good. I that's a pun. We I'll like have a that. Pun. Yes. And um, I'm writing my Sky Night magazine column, Exoplanet Excursions, uh, as well as um, I've got uh, an online astronomy show coming up with uh, Dr. Paul Abel and Pete Lawrence called Star Map. And that's all about amateur astronomy, the kind of observations you can make from your own backyard. So some things I'm looking forward to there. Best of luck with all of those, John, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Mia. Been a pleasure. This really is the ultimate answer to life, the universe and everything. All five radio series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy collected together from the original primary and secondary phases through to the more recent tertiary, quandary and quintessential phases. These are the adventures of Arthur Dent, Ford Prefect, Seyfod Beeblebrox and their assorted human, robotic and alien companions. I bought some peanuts. What? If you've never been through a matter transference beam before, you've probably lost some salt and protein. The beer you had should have cushioned your system a bit. How are you feeling? Like a military academy. Bits of me keep on passing out. If I asked you where the hell we were, would I regret it? We're safe. Oh, good. We're in a small galley cabin in one of the spaceships of the Vogon constructor fleet. Ah, this is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that I wasn't previously aware of. I'll have a look for the light. All right. How did we get here? We hitched a lift. <laughs> Excuse me, are you trying to tell me that we just stuck out our thumbs and some bug-eyed monster stuck his head out and said, Hi, fellas, hop right in. I can take you as far as the Basingstoke roundabout. Well, the thumb's an electronic sub-ether device. The roundabout's at Barnard Star, six light-years away. But otherwise, that's more or less right. And the bug-eyed monster? It's green, yes. Fine. When can I go home? You can't. Ah, I found the light. Good grief. Is this really the interior of a flying saucer? It certainly is. What do you think? Well, it's a bit squalid, isn't it? What did you expect? Well, I don't know. Gleaming control panels, flashing lights, computer screens. Not old mattresses. These are the Dentrassi sleeping quarters. I thought you said they were called Vogons or something. The Vogons run the ship. The Dentrassi are the cooks. They let us on board. I'm confused. These full-cast BBC Radio 4 dramas of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy are available now on CD and digital download.